you know, a lot of people are like, you could raise $50 million pre-revenue, which we did, but FanDuel is going to spend $50 million NFL week one. How are you going to compete with that? But we just have to play a different game than that, right? So I think getting brand awareness, but just as importantly, brand affinity, creating a brand that really resonates with consumers, not just with product experience, but also through original content, short form content, a lot of the things that Jake is really passionate about. Hey, this is Jesse here, and this is the Betting Startups Podcast, where we interview the founders and CEOs of the most promising startups competing for a piece of the multi-billion dollar sports betting industry. It's a brand new year, and we have an outstanding episode to kick off the 2023 calendar. And speaking of it being a new year, what better time than now to make a move and find your dream role? Bettingrolls.com is the largest job board dedicated to the betting, iGaming, and fantasy sports industry, with over a thousand jobs currently open from some of the industry's top employers. It costs absolutely nothing to look at the postings and even offers free tools to help you find your dream role. Take the first step in your next big chapter in this exciting and growing industry by visiting bettingrolls.com. That's B-E-T-T-I-N-G-R-O-L-E-S.com. All right, we are back on the Betting Startups podcast with the first episode of the new year, and we're starting 2023 with a bang because not only do we have one of the betting industry's most visible new companies as our guest, but we're welcoming a dear friend of the podcast in as a guest host for this episode. Benji Cherniak is an advisor and investor in numerous early stage companies in the space and was previously a guest of the pod himself last year. Benji, welcome back to the pod. Great to have you back. How are things on your end here at the starting line for 2023? Everything's great, Jesse, and it's great to be back on the pod. It was a thrill to host the pod, and uh, you know I'm such a huge fan of it. So to have the inaugural kickoff of 2023, it's an honor. Awesome. Well, as I alluded to for our first guest of the new year, we have quite a big one as guests go within this space. And you spoke with Joey Levy from Better. And just wondering, Benji, if you can preview the episode for folks listening and tee up what they're about to hear in your conversation with Joey. Yeah, I mean, like Joey to me is just one of the most fascinating peoples in our space. You know, he's he's a young entrepreneur, yet he's already been at this for close to 10 years and has had a few startups previously. And, you know, I kind of view better as a bit of a culmination of everything that he's been working towards in his career. So to be able to d- discuss that with him and, and chat about it and kind of hear his journey and how it all started at the beginning and, and then through simple bets and to where he's gotten today and to hear of how he kind of, came to partner with Jake Paul and, 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 and just the entire, you know, piece of it. And you add in alongside that, that he's involved as a venture capitalist himself with 305 Ventures. So we touch on that and, you know, he's a guy who's had some real success on the fundraising side, which is a huge challenge right now. So touching it on his views on, on that piece as well. And, and he's just an all around good dude. So it was really a lot of fun to spend a half an hour, maybe a little bit longer discussing all this with him. Awesome. Well, it was a great episode, Benji. You and Joey really set the bar high for the podcast for the rest of the year. So apologies in advance to future guests. But once again, thanks again for jumping back on and, and getting in there with Joey, Benji. It was awesome. And with that, let's get into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Betting Startups podcast. I'm Benji Cherniak, sitting in for Jesse Learmoth. Jesse, a big thanks for allowing us to hijack the pod for the day. And uh, my guest today is none other than Joey Levy of Better Fame, uh, Joey Levy, serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist. Joey, welcome to the show. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right into it, man. Uh, obviously, I want to talk about Better, and I think our audience is going to be curious to hear all about it and what you've been up to. But 
Let's back up a little bit to kind of your early years. And uh, I mean, you're, you're a young guy, but you've been at this now for what, a decade or so? It's almost been a decade. I think it's technically been, I started DraftPod in like 2014. So it's been, it's almost nine years, a couple of weeks. I, I think I've known you for like four and a half years or something, but I don't even know a whole lot about DraftPod. Maybe take us through it, the early years and how that came about. Been about surf. Yeah, I mean, I got started in, in all of this really like when I was in like as a kid, like middle school, high school, I remember like season long fantasy baseball specifically like, you know, I was in I split a team with my dad since I was like 11 or 12 years old. It was like five by five rotisserie NL only auction draft. We had like farm teams. I remember I was bidding for like Ryan Braun when he was, you know, minor leaguer or, or rookie or whatever. And, you know, I was just super into managing a fantasy baseball team. And I thought fantasy sports was the greatest thing ever made watching sports so much more entertaining than it was otherwise. And I'm saying this as somebody who was like a, like a kid who was like already into sports. And I just thought fantasy sports was amazing. And then I started undergraduate school in 2013. And as you could probably recall, that's around the time, like 2013, 2014 was around the time when like FanDuel and DraftKings were becoming increasingly more mainstream. You know, you'd start seeing their ads on on television and radio and you go on websites and you see it. And I remember as a result of all that marketing, stumbling upon their product experiences and starting to play daily fantasy sports. And I thought that, you know, this is like the best idea ever. Like you, you basically made, you know, my favorite thing to do, which was fantasy sports and introduced an order of magnitude greater level of instant gratification to the consumer experience. And you know, I, I just loved the, the product experience. But then as I was using it more and more, I kept thinking to myself, like, I was already a fantasy sports user. Like, I was able to ultimately navigate around the salary cap formats. I had to do a little bit of research to understand, like, what a GPP was. It just felt very complicated and kind of clunky as a user experience. It's like this intimidating contest lobby with, you know, GPPs and these other things that I didn't quite understand. And I was thinking to myself, like, if you weren't already like a super enthusiastic fantasy sports user, if you're not like a quantitatively focused customer who's creating some type of algorithm to be able to determine which player salaries were relatively good value relative to others, for example... Chances are, you know, you could still use this product, but there's too much friction at the point of entry and, you know, you're probably not going to win, right? And and it just didn't feel like a user experience that was built for like a mass market casual sports fan. So, you know, I was thinking through like, how could you potentially solve for this? And, you know, the initial idea that I had was, well, what if we launched the first daily fantasy sports platform that kind of almost like replicated the FanDuel and DraftKings experience, but like felt like more inviting from like a design standpoint, but then most importantly, like eliminated the salary cap and enabled people to just basically pick whoever they wanted. And, and a lot of people thought it was, a, it was a dumb idea because it's like, well, everybody's going to pick the same players. And, and in some cases that happened, but you know, if you have a lineup of like nine or 10 players per lineup, it really only takes one or two players to be different and you have a pretty different score and, and ties were not would not be as frequent. So but really my my general idea, this is like again, as like an 18, 19 year old kid with no experience sort of 
thinking through business strategy and what my actual methodology was for like sequencing execution over time. I just had this like intuition that there needed to be like a simpler, more casual fan oriented experience that would, you know, you'd be able to get some type of product market fit through understanding like, okay, we launched this thing. Do people want to bet with no salary cap? And, you know, just kind of like see how it goes and and go from there and ultimately build a product company and brand that's synonymous with being like the place to play daily fantasy sports. If you're like a casual sports fan who wasn't entering hundreds of lineups into the same GPP and you just wanted to like use this as a platform to enhance your consumption of sports. So, so that's why I started DraftPod and what I was ultimately trying to accomplish at the time. And we did have some initial success. I, you know, came up with the idea and started executing against it in 2014. So like late freshman year, early sophomore year, ended up launching the product in 2015, saw some traction. We started becoming a, an operator that people in the industry, you know, knew about. And, you know, we were experiencing some strong growth early. 2015 NFL season, you know, I was, you know, candidly too aggressive with our customer acquisition approach around that time, thinking that we would, you know, if we could continue growing in the manner that we were growing, we could go out and, you know, get a series A and, you know, just keep sort of almost replicating the DraftKings playbook from some perspective where in the beginning, they overlaid a lot of their contests. They were aggressive with customer acquisition they differentiated their brand. They were able to leverage that to raise more capital to inform growth and just quickly blow by FanDuel, right? So that's kind of what we were trying to replicate. And of course, in mid to late October of 2015, you had that whole insider trading scandal between the DraftKings employee winning a bunch of money on FanDuel, these headlines about the FBI investigating the category, you know, and then ultimately Eric Schneiderman starting what was what was a domino effect of cease and desist letters throughout the country that really propelled the industry into what was ultimately a, an existential regulatory crisis and 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 just not even understanding is daily fantasy sports as a category going to be something that exists a year or two from now so as you can imagine that series hey was not going to happen at least not in the form that that we you know, previously thought would be possible and that ultimately just was was very um, difficult for the business. I mean, we had a, you know, we raised a couple million dollars in a market where pretty much anybody that was competitive had raised a substantially larger sum of, of, of capital beyond that. So, you know, certainly it was not the business outcome that we would have you know, liked or expected. But, you know, for, for me, it was an incredible learning experience, you know, introduced me to, to the industry and ultimately what got me exposed to traditional sports betting and realizing that to whatever extent the user experience in daily fantasy sports left a lot to be desired for the casual sports fan, the traditional sports betting user experience was even yeah. worse. I remember, yeah. you know, first seeing a minus 175 plus five and a half, 49.5 O slash U and not knowing what in the world that meant, which is ultimately uh, what led me to start Simple Bet. And uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like there's parallels. There's two things two parallels that I take away in that story is that number one, you were 18 and gunslinging and now you're a decade later, you're still gunslinging and you had been the whole way through. But the other piece that really resonates with me is that what you were trying to do at draft pots, which was to simplify the fantasy experience resonates to this day, as you aim to simplify the sports betting experience 
initially via simple bets and now through better. So let's talk a bit about simple bets and you know, you, you just came a, a little bit about how that came about and, you know, what, what the thought process was. But uh, I remember meeting you in the early days there. And what, what was it like at the beginning uh, when you're with Simple Bets, working with the operators who were in many cases set in their ways and trying to introduce a new concept and a new way of thinking about sports betting? So, I mean, in terms of the origin story, I mean, we kind of very briefly, but already alluded to it, right? It's like, I was exposed to traditional sports betting. I remember, you know, seeing a minus 175 and having to spend, you know, a few minutes on Google understanding what that meant. And I thought that in and of itself was a problem, right? Something as simple as putting money to bet on the Dolphins to beat the Jets in a, in a football game required me to understand almost like this foreign language that I had previously not been exposed to. So I started Simple Bet. And this is around the time, like think like 2016, 2017, where Robinhood, you know, the day trading app was starting yeah. to really become more mainstream. And I remember, you know, day trading face face similar parallels to this category too, where it's like, I remember E-Trade, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Vanguard were like the main day trading apps before Robinhood launched. And they were really good, similarly to FanDuel and DraftKings Daily Fantasy, really good, robust user experiences for the people who had already done it before, but they weren't good. Like I remember looking at E-Trade for the first time and I'm like, what What the fuck am I looking at, right? Like I didn't understand what what this all meant. It was very complicated and intimidating. And, and then Robinhood came around and I'm like, okay, I load the app. I click on a stock, I type in how much money I want to invest in this stock and voila, it gets there. You know, it's like super simple, intuitive. So really the the analogy I like to use a lot of the time when initially starting SimpleBet was we wanted to build like the Robin Hood of gambling from like a consumer experience standpoint, like really making it just simple and intuitive for people who had not bet on sports before in the same way that Robinhood made day trading simple and intuitive for people who had not bought and sold public equities on their phone before. So that was the initial vision. And it evolved a little bit over time. I mean, I think I met you around the time where it was like very recent, like recently after we modified the approach a little bit, because Simple Bet's known today as being the leading B2B tech company for micro betting, which is quite different than the than the product vision that I'm describing in terms of building the Robinhood for gambling, right? So Simple Bet was initially supposed to be direct to consumer, user experience focused Robinhood for gambling. And then PASPA was repealed literally six weeks after we incorporated Simple Bet Inc. So we incorporated Simple Bet Inc. on, I believe the exact date is April 4th of 2018. I think PASPA was repealed on like May 14th or May 18th or something like that, 2018. And I remember recognizing how profound of a moment that was and, you know, discussing with my co-founders, Chris and Scott around like how this means that we need to focus exclusively on U.S. sports. And, you know, some of the initial simple consumer experiences that we were designing around U.S. sports included things like enabling people to bet on what's going to happen in the next pitch or at bat of a baseball game, what's going to happen in the next play or drive of a football game for no particular reason other than these just seem to be obvious things that people in the U.S. would want to bet on. And that's when we went to like Sport Radar and Bet Genius and Stats and Perform, who were two separate companies at the time, and tried to get the technology to enable this moment-to-moment -moment betting on these discrete occurrences for U.S. sporting events. And that's when we discovered that, one, none of them had it, and two, we made 
this, you know, broader insight that's really informing, you know, the business today, which is that product technology and operations in the global sports betting industry has historically been rooted in matched outcome-based experiences because before the U.S. market opened up, the global marketplace was predominantly driven by soccer, which as we know is a fluid game. There's not really any moments to bet on. There's no discrete occurrences. There's not a lot of scoring. Whereas if you think of the cadence of U.S. sports, they're almost the opposite, right? Like baseball is driven by pitches and at-bats. NFL is driven by plays and drives. Even NBA, which is a fluid game like soccer, is driven by a lot of possessions, a lot of scoring, a lot of speculation over superstar players and what they'll do next. So that's when we recognize that it was kind of like our holy shit moment where it's like micro betting may actually be the predominant way people bet on U.S. sports because they're so nicely suited to the cadence and composition of U.S. sports. And when you combine that with, uh, you know, perhaps even more importantly, this broader consumer trend of consumers having increasingly lower attention spans, you know, and in many ways, this is the reason why TikTok has quickly taken over social media. It's like a 10 minute YouTube video is too long for a lot of people now. They need a 10 second TikTok. So combining the cadence of U.S. sports with, you know, this desire for instant gratification and micro betting could be this category that that is really important in, in, in the U.S. sports betting marketplace. We started building the, the technology to enable it ourselves simply because we couldn't get it from B2B companies like Radar Twice. and Genius. We, we had to, you know, build a lot of bespoke machine learning and automation infrastructure and nobody had done it before. And we're, we're, we didn't have the expertise to do it. So there was a lot of fits and starts along the way. And we ultimately figured out how to do it. I remember I met and the super long winded way of answering your original question. But when we met, I think it was in April of 2018, we were still at that point where we were trying to determine, do we focus on licensing this as like a B2B pricing feed? Do we focus on maintaining that initial user experience focused vision where we wouldn't expose the pricing feed, but rather, you know, aim to require operators to pursue some sort of like iframe integration so that at least we could get our user experience out there? Do we just say, fuck it, go direct to consumer? Like these B2B customers are not receptive to what we're trying to sell. And Without controlling the consumer experience, we ultimately can't really accomplish what we're setting out to accomplish in the first place. Like those were some of the questions that we were kind of trying to get answers to in real time. And I, I think we met at a point where we had this product vision that we had conviction against simple intuitive user experience and micro betting as being an important part of this category, but we weren't sure exactly how to go to market with it. And, you know, it was also at a time where, you know, I, I don't think it, it was just the, the U.S. sports betting category was so nascent in and of itself, right? That the category was only live for about two months. I think it was August of 2018 when, when the first sports books launched in, in New Jersey. So it was a period of time where it was just like, we weren't yeah, sure exactly how to go to market with it, but we, we knew we had something from a product vision standpoint. Yeah, but you think back to that, that was like right when Pasta was repealed four years ago. It was actually October 2018 that we met because I think we met actually at G to E the exact day they announced the sale, the exact day they announced the sale of Don Bestas, the day that I met you actually, coincidentally. But putting that aside, at that time, and even to a certain extent to this day, but certainly back then, the focus was on getting live in New Jersey and all those initial states that they were launching into product differentiation and some new concepts, such as micro markets must have been the furthest thing from the mind 
of, of these nascent operators that are just concentrating on getting their operations up and running. hundred percent. And that's why it was so challenging in the early days to get operators to just commit to doing something with us because while, you know, and I, and I think one of my advantages as an operator in the category is you alluded to it. I now have about a decade of experience, but I'm 27 years old, right? So I have empathy with the consumer in the category. And that's one of Jake's advantages too. I mean, he's 25 years old and he really understands what the younger demo is, is looking for from a product and, and sort of content standpoint. But, you know, I'm sitting there with a ton of conviction behind what we're doing, seeing that none of these other operators really offered micro betting. They didn't offer these user experiences. I'm thinking to myself as like a very naive 22 or 23 year old, like, why are we not breaking through here? Because it just felt obvious that this is what the market would ultimately look and feel like. But then over time, I gained a, a greater appreciation for, you know, the understandable business dynamics that were at play here, which is, you know, this is a brand new market. We don't even know what like the uniform regulatory frameworks are going to look like in these different states. And there's a lot of data that suggests that if you're a day one operator in these jurisdictions, you're going to be a market leader if, if you know, you have a, a product that's halfway decent. So I totally understand in retrospect why these operators like FanDuel and DraftKings and at the time, William Hill, which ultimately, you know, Caesars and, and BetMGM were just sort of maniacally focused on state expansion and brand awareness, customer acquisition, and punting product innovation and differentiation for some point in the future. Like, I totally get it. And if I were them, I would very possibly have done the, the same exact thing, right? Yeah. So go ahead. But, 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 but now we're getting market acceptance of micro betting and we're seeing adoption and, you know, you guys have broken through on the simple bet side to some major clients over the last couple of years. And yet, despite all that, and that, despite the fact that the pendulum has begun swinging in the right direction for you guys and simple bet, you made the decision to, to migrate off and start better. So what led to that decision? And. You know, I want to talk, of course, about, you know, the dynamic of how it came to be that you partnered with Jake Paul. Maybe take me through all of that as to what led you to start better. How did that come about? How did Jake Paul come into the mix? So I think that's something that's really interesting to me. Yeah. So I think just to kind of piggyback off the last point around like what the operators have been prioritizing today, you, you almost have, I think, this innovator's dilemma dynamic within this category where you know, the operators that really matter, right? DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, Caesars, I think Fanatics is going to matter. And I haven't seen Fanatics as product, but let, let's just assume for a moment that it's going to be a sports book that, you know, to a large extent looks and feels like what you currently see on the market, which I think is probably going to be the case given I, I believe they're using, you know, Melco and, you know, some of the traditional B2B platform companies that power these other operators. I think Hard Rock will probably matter too. So let's say those are the ones that matter. Talking about businesses that all do many billions of dollars in annual revenue, they already have market access, they have brand awareness. For them to fundamentally change the look and feel of their product experiences away from the minus 175 money line plus five and a half point spread the over-unders, the spreadsheet-like interface that traditional sports bettors are accustomed to, for them to change that on a, on a fundamental basis is, is arguably more risky than it is beneficial, right? You really need to have a lot of conviction behind a differentiated product approach in order for that differentiated product approach to make sense because these businesses are now in a position where 
They made the initial investment in state expansion, market access, customer acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. They, they made that investment. So, you know, all they got, they, they, they have the foundations in place. They just got to turn on more states and they're all getting more efficient as businesses. And I think all are probably going to be successful. Not, not all, all everybody in the category. I'm talking about the, the leaders right now. I think most of them will probably be, be successful and find a path to profitability and, you know, they'll, they'll do well. Right. So my point is, I don't think any of them are really in a position to launch a fundamentally different consumer experience. Now, if you really zoom out, though, you have about two to three million monthly active users in the category between what FanDuel and DraftKings are reporting. And you have about 150 to 180 million gambling age sports fans in this country, all of whom I'd be willing to bet have, you know, heard of FanDuel or DraftKings by now. They they advertise as if they were car insurance companies. But there's a big gap between what I think the ultimate TAM is and the current state of, of MAUs in the category. And I think that's because the product experience is still not simple and intuitive enough for your average mass market sports fan to pick up and intuitively interact with it. So I always thought at Simple Bet that the biggest limiting factor to not just the mainstream adoption of micro betting, but of sports betting as a category in general was this user experience problem. And as a B2B odds feed provider, there's just no way to have any influence over that. So I, I made the decision that the only way to prosecute this properly was to go direct to consumer in some way, shape, or form and spend a lot of simple bet thinking through how can we do this within simple bet? Again, going back to the iframe integrations, whatever, but you know, the user experience is not just the front end UI, UX, getting rid of money lines and grids and tables and spreadsheets and things like that. It's it's also how you register and onboard customers, what your brand feels like, you know, how you go about distribution, like all of that stuff contributes to the consumer experience. So had to go direct to consumer, ultimately couldn't do it within Simple Bet because it's just too conflicting as as a business opportunity. Like what would DraftKings and Bet365 and Caesars and some of Simple Bet's other customers say about that? So the creative solution we came up with was to create a new entity. Give Simple Bet a minority position so that they would have some equity upside in the in the opportunity, and I would go out and start it as a new business and raise separate capital. And you know, ultimately along the way of thinking through all of this stuff, met Jake and got got to know him a, a lot better and see how he viewed the the world and you know the category and this product. And you know, ultimately decided that you know from a co-founder, I couldn't think of anybody better really that could help spearhead distribution in a manner that would enable structurally lower burn for for this business, right? Because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you could, you know, you could raise $50 million pre-revenue, which we did, but FanDuel is going to spend $50 million NFL week one. How are you going to compete with that? But we just have to play a different game than that, right? So I think getting brand awareness, but just as importantly, brand affinity, creating a brand that really resonates with consumers, not just with product experience, but also through original content, short form content. A lot of the things that Jake is really passionate about with respect to that being the future of, of media distribution, branding, customer acquisition over time, um, that ultimately helped inform our, our strategy that has led us to become, despite launching just four months ago, what I think may be the fastest growing sports media brand in the country. We're the number two sports betting media brand on on social, that is also an operator. So for example, more aggregate followers and engagement than DraftKings Sportsbook, FanDuel Sportsbook, et cetera, were on track to pass their main account soon. So it's working so far. 
And I'm excited to see how this ultimately informs, you know, what, what our market share will be in some of these, in, in these initial launch states. Well, we'll find out soon enough, I think. When do you, when do you, when do you go live and in what states and when do you anticipate start to start taking bets? Yeah. So currently tracking towards January 1 at 12.01 AM in, in Ohio. So, so less than two weeks from, from right now. Well, by the time this pod is, podcast is out there, you're probably already taking bets. So obviously it's just around the corner. I, I want to go back to Jake a little bit and, the, you know, uh, working alongside him. How would you categorize his involvement? Obviously he has one of the biggest followings out there on social media, if not the biggest, and can attract a lot of people and drive a lot of traffic to you. But outside of that, what's it like working alongside him? How do you categorize his involvement operationally? How involved is he? Maybe give us some insights in terms of that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is evident in just the content that you see, right? Like he's, you know, out there advocating for the business, posting about the business kind of all day, every day operationally, I mean, just daily operational involvement as uh, almost as if he, I mean, his, aside from the founder of the business, he's the president of the business. He's an officer of the business. Unlike some other influencers in the space, he's the first one that's actually licensed as a gambling operator. You know, he's a, he's a licensed key employee in Ohio, for example. So he, he's all in. And that's the one, you know, one of the things that, you know, I spent a lot of time with, with him on and with anybody that we bring into the company on is, you know, if you join better, you're, you're all in, right? Like even in terms of our, you know, how we operate as a business, there's no remote work. We're all in person here in Miami. Everybody has to be on site. That that's how it is, right? Everybody's all in. I think with Jake, the other thing worth, you know, emphasizing is everybody knows he, you know, one of the most recognized influencers, global figures, celebrities, et cetera, on the internet, 70 million followers across social. But what people don't really appreciate is that he's also, you know, arguably, at least from my perspective, as somebody who's worked closely with him for a while now, he's, you know, probably the smartest marketing mind and content creator that I've ever interacted with. And he, and arguably, you know, is probably the best in, in the country. Everything that he's created, it's self-made, you know, just content idea after content idea after content idea. So we don't just get the benefit of the audience. I would argue that it's the the creativity around branding and customer acquisition and marketing, just having him drive that. I would argue that is is arguably even more valuable than the audience. Amazing. Talk to me a little bit of, you know, you spoke a bit about how people that come to join your organization are 100% all in alongside you and alongside Jake and live and breathe the vision the same way that you do. Um, I know you've got the new offices in Miami that are being built out. Talk to me a bit about the culture that you're creating, the type of people that you're bringing in and, and, and how that's going to resonate in the product deliverable. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. One is, you know, obviously we're in this post-COVID world where know, remote work kind of became the standard. And I, you know, I've done both remote work on site in office work. And I just think it's totally night and day with respect to collaboration, productivity. I'm just generally pretty skeptical. You build greatness from zero to one over Zoom and Slack. So there's a requirement for, for everybody to be all the full-time employees of the company to be in the office in Miami, just working together in terms of how we're structuring the team, I would say, you know, an emphasis on just really talented people versus a lot of people. I've made this mistake, as you know, in the past where you can 
think that more equals more, but oftentimes less is more. Like I'd rather have 25 killers all under one roof with me in Miami than 75 to 100 average or above average people who also maybe they're great, but they just, there's too many people for, for the leadership to give proper direction to them. So just, you know, for example, I tell my, my team and, 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 and my investors quite, quite often that I'd rather miss plan and be delayed if it means that we couldn't find the right people for certain roles fast enough. That's how focused we are and deliberate we are with respect to ensuring that we invite the right people to the company. And that's been reflected to date. I mean, we only have 20 full-time people at the company right now. We're going to be at about 25 by mid-January. And despite a relatively small team, because as you know, most of the operators in this category have hundreds or thousands of employees, we have 20. We're on track to be a day one operator in one of the nation's most important states before some multi-billion dollar companies that have tens of thousands of employees that have announced their intentions of, of entering the category. And, and I think that's a testament to just, you know, what you could get done with a small group of people that work well together and share the same vision and kind of know what we need to do to, to execute against plan. Amazing. Yeah. Look, I think that a lot of eyes are on you guys now that you get ready to launch and we're running a little tight on time here, but I just want to jump into a couple of other topics real quick. And, you know, sure. alongside all of this, you have 305 Ventures. Maybe really quickly, tell us what that's about and, you know, uh, and, and how that in some ways has played a role in, in helping what you do at Simple Bed and now at Better. Uh, and as you think about raising funds and raising capital, I'm going to want to talk about that a little bit quickly as well. So 305 Ventures is a small, early stage investment vehicle that I co-founded with one of my best friends here in Miami, who I met through the Teal Fellowship, which was a program I was, I was part of, um, you know, after dropping out of college. And, and, and uh, one of my simple bad investors actually is the third co-founder who, who has since gotten into venture as a result of what we're doing on the 305 side. And, you know, we write small 25 to 250K checks, sometimes more than that when we do an SPV into a variety of companies called 305. It doesn't, you know, the businesses don't necessarily have to be in Miami. We called it that mostly to send a signal to the marketplace that there is early stage venture capital available here in Miami. And, you know, as you know, I, I've been in Miami for, for uh, you know, about five years, at least on a part-time basis. And I've long held the belief that Miami would be a tech hub at some point. And I think COVID really accelerated that. So it felt like a good opportunity to, you know, build a venture fund that was synonymous with the city. And, you know, to whatever extent we could play a small role in accelerating the city's you know, tech scene, we're, we're happy to do so. And we think we've, we've, we've done that in terms of how this is, you know, benefited the, the operating businesses. I, I would say that being an investor, being on the other side of the table is actually very helpful when thinking through how to operate a business. Like some of the questions that were being asked of me when I was raising money before I was an investor, I got a newfound appreciation for as an investor because I found myself oftentimes asking those same questions. And then when you're the CEO of a company, you know, in many ways, you're, you're also an investor, right? Like your job is to figure out how to allocate human capital and financial capital and just allocating resources and sequencing execution. So um, that mindset has been incredibly uh, valuable to sort of you know, be be a part of on on the investment side with respect to being an operator of of a business. 
So I think a lot of the folks that, or some of the folks listening to this podcast themselves have startups. And look, you've been on the other side back when you were starting out with, with, with draft pots, where you're going out and doing those first initial raises and trying to get that seed capital to fund your first few months of operations. And you throw into it right now that we're facing a pretty tough economy. And obviously you guys have something rolling here and have some good people around you and have the benefit of some great investors that you're working with. But what advice do you have for some of the folks who are, and you're investing in some of these startups as well, via 305 that are in early stage and trying to get that first half a million dollar raise to get from zero to first base so they, they can grow from there. And having been around the block and done this a couple of times, what advice do you have for those entrepreneurs that are that are starting out, that are in a tough economy, and that are thinking about how to scale their business while they're having difficulty raising capital? What suggestions would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the mindset has to be quite different than it was in 2021, right? Like, you know, in 2021, everybody and their mother was throwing money at startups without a ton of diligence. There was a lot of sort of piggybacking off of elite investors' diligence and and just name recognition and all of that. And it was a very growth-focused market. I mean, we're seeing it even in not just an early-stage venture, but even in the public companies in our category, right, where everybody's talking about multiples of top-line revenue. Now those multiples have become compressed, and it's not even about top-line revenue. It's about when are you going to get to profitability and what's your EBITDA look like, right? So I think just behaving accordingly in this market, early-stage operators, one, need to extend runway as long as possible. Just have as much dough in the bank as possible. If that means allocating less resources towards scaling the team or, you know, R&D related product and technology initiatives, like just extend runway as long as possible. And, and that sort of mandated discipline might actually be a blessing for a lot of these companies because, you know, you'll, you'll oftentimes discover that that less is more and you could get a lot done with a small group of people that really, you know, know what, what they're doing and what they need to accomplish. And so, yeah, just extend runway and be super transparent and communicative with your investors. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of situations where when things are great, founders are super happy to be communicating with investors all the time. But then when things are not great, you know, they all of a sudden you haven't heard from them for six months. Right. So I think getting into a regular consistent cadence of monthly or quarterly investor updates, regardless of market conditions, regardless of execution. I think, you know, at the early stage, you're, you're, you're really betting on the entrepreneur to fit, right? And if you need to raise more capital from existing investors and potentially new investors to extend the runway and enable you to figure it out, you first and foremost need to, you know, establish a level of credibility with, with your investors and, and just, you know, being transparent, particularly in, in, in times of, of a downfall or struggle or, you know, whatever. I, th I think that's how you actually gain credibility to ultimately enable you to get the support of your existing shareholder base, get new shareholders in the deal and, and buy more time to, to ultimately get to product market fit. I think once you get to product market fit, it becomes easier to raise money because then you just have a unit economics narrative and math and, you know, cohort analysis that could validate your vision and your thesis and you'll be able to still raise money. I mean, people forget VCs are still sitting on a record amount of LP capital. They're just not deploying it into companies that don't have a compelling unit economics narrative or, you know, don't have a lot of data to back up their, their assertions. 
And I will say that having, again, I've known you for four or five years or so, but I think you walk the talk as it pertains to the transparency piece of always knowing you to be a person who, who, who is exactly that and, and, and you do things with integrity. And I think it speaks to the, the, the leadership position that you're in now and the team that you're building and working alongside some, some fantastic leading global influencers and everything else. And, you know, we'll wrap it up here, but really quickly, I know that you have tons of people trying to reach out to you and your time is limited. I'm not going to ask how can people get in touch with you, but for people that want to either work for better or collaborate for, with better in some capacity, what's the best path for them to do so? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we check all of the inbound messages we get on our website. So very, very simply better.app, B-E-T-R dot A-P-P. And you'll find a contact form there. You'll find our jobs board there and we check it regularly. And, you know, we've hired people who've applied through the website and uh, we've reached back out to plenty of people who've reached out through the website. So feel free to reach out to us through, through that. Cool. Well, that, that takes this one to an end. Obviously, we could have gone in a lot longer. It's much more to discuss, Joey, but we'll put a pin in it there. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Jesse, for allowing us to hijack the podcast for an episode. It's my first go around as a host. A lot of fun. Great guest, Joey. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Thanks for having me.